Okay, if you would please turn to Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. I'll be reading verses 21 through 34. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader is one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Father, may we be servants. And may we be those who are happy to be served by our Savior. His words of truth, which are for our eternal good. May You grant us ears to hear, hearts to believe, and to rejoice in these glorious Gospel truths. Amen. One of the ever-present, ongoing enemies in every Christian's life is our self-centered, egocentric pride. Desire to be recognized for our greatness, our goodness, our service, whatever it is, please, please acknowledge me. And it is so ever-present, it can even show up at the most holiest of times. Like sitting at the table in Jerusalem in an upper room right after the Lord Jesus said, this is My body 
broken for you. This cup is the cup of My blood of the new covenant poured out for your sins. And instead of these guys being a little self-reflective and grateful about being saved from sin, they quickly turn to bickering about which one of them is the greatest apostle of Jesus. I mean, get the picture. The greatest human being ever is sitting at the table. He has just informed them that one of you twelve is about to betray me. They get a little self-reflective. and Is it me? Is it who is it? Okay, okay no, it's not me. And somehow that turns it. Not only is that not me, it might be you. I'm certainly better than Bartholomew. And Bartholomew debates that. Peter sits back until it's all said and tells him the obvious about his leadership abilities and his mouth. Or John, I'm the one whom he really loves. This is what's going on. And it is a picture of all of us. It is the picture of the threat that is always there within our lives on a daily basis. Even as born again people. Jesus says, guys, I'm being betrayed. But I'm pouring my life out for you. For the forgiveness of your sins. And then each one becomes preoccupied with trying to defend to others their own greatness. Who is worthy of the most accolades here? And I think that table discussion has gone on throughout the centuries. In one way or another. But here's the good news for us pathetic sinners that these guys represent for us. Jesus is merciful. He did not throw these guys away. Instead, He started to teach them. And the reason is because even this sin, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. Even that sin will be paid for on the cross within 24 hours. And so, he doesn't condemn them. But he says, guys, let me teach you. I'm calling you to lead. You are my apostles. I'm sending you out. And you do go to have authority. But don't lead like the world leads. Lead like I lead as a servant to you. Guys, none of you have anything to boast about. I'm just, let, me just, let me just give it real quickly and we'll go through it. I'm just give the synopsis of the flow of what I think is happening. So he says that. And guys, none of you have anything to boast about of any greatness whatsoever. In fact, Peter, if I left you to yourself in your own greatness, You would never follow me. You would never repent. But Peter, I prayed for you so that you will repent. And not only that, you're going to be used by me to help other sinners 
And you're going to strengthen them. Don't you guys see the Gospel at its core and what it's about? When you get it, there is no place for boasting ever in yourselves. That's the lesson of the passage. That the secret of our pursuing to live free of our innate desire to be praised and admired and deemed is great is looking to Jesus because that's what He appeals to Him. Do like I do. Because looking and comparing ourselves with one another, it leads to a functional denial of the Gospel. And it leads to envy. And it leads to jealousy. And it leads to manipulation of others to use them as means to your end so that they may serve you. But as a whole, Jesus in this whole passage and what we're getting here is understand the depths of what I'm about to do for you represented by this blood and this bread. That unless I intervene, Peter, you'll become a Judas. You have nothing to boast about even of your love and faith in Me. And therefore, go lead now by serving others as unworthy slaves. Alright, so let's see it in the text. Start with verse 21. Jesus just finished instituting the Lord's Supper. And the very next thing He says, but, behold, look guys, the hand of Him who betrays Me is with Me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom He is betrayed. So here's Jesus. There's 13 of them in this room. And He announces to the twelve, one of you will betray Me. And then notice the word for at the beginning of verse 22. It means, yes, this is true. One of you is going to betray Me and now for, meaning I'm going to explain that statement. Yes, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. What do, you say, what do you mean? The Son of Man will be handed over and slugged and spit upon and mocked and slowly tortured to death as it has been determined. And part of that determination is that He be betrayed by one of the twelve. But woe to you or to that man by whom He is betrayed. Alright, let's stop there for a minute. Here is a basic principle on how to read the Bible and draw conclusions from it. Draw theology from it. Okay. 
Don't, for instance, take Jesus' statement here. The Son of Man goes as it has been, and He means by God, determined. And then close your Bible. And draw conclusions like, well, look at that. Judas is just a pawn in God's sovereign chess game. Judas is forced against his will because of God's sovereignty. No. That would be radically wrong to say that. And unbiblical. Just read on. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Okay? Alright? Don't, don't, don't not believe that. But read on. But, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So in other words, Jesus makes a statement and He clarifies, yes, it is according to God's determination. His predetermined plan that I, Jesus, will be betrayed. But, Judas is responsible. God did not force Judas against Judas's will. Note first that that phrase there, has been determined, is the same word that Luke uses for Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where it's in the ESV translates the word definite. Meaning this. In other words, there's a determination that's happened. So listen to what Peter preaches. Verse 23, Acts 2. This Jesus delivered up, and that included Judas and all the rest, delivered up according to the... And this is the same word as our text that Jesus uses. According to the definite or determined plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, God is sovereign. It has been determined by God that Judas, I mean, uh, that Jesus be betrayed by Judas. And yes, Judas is culpable. That's what Jesus' words mean in verse 22. But woe to Him, to the One by whom I am betrayed. Listen to how the early disciples prayed together in Acts 4. For truly, God, in this city there were gathered together against Your holy servant Jesus, whom You anointed. Who was gathered together? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, they were gathered together to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predetermined to take place. God did not force Herod or Pilate or the Sanhedrin. He did not force any of them 
including Judas, to do something that they did not will to do. Judas has a human will, as we all do. A human will, in other words, to choose whatever he desired most at any given moment. And that is exactly what Judas did. And that is why he and we are responsible for our choices. That's why Jesus justly pronounces doom over him. A woe. Very bad. It's a woe. Very bad coming to you. And he doesn't mean unjustly. He means justly because he's responsible. And so, Judas is responsible for his choices, for his will. And God is sovereign. And then, they're sitting there and they hear Jesus make this pronouncement and all these guys are frozen with shock. And they do get a little introspective. We see it in other accounts too in different ways. Jesus, is it, is it me? Or Here they're discussing with one another. You see verse 23, and they began to question one another of which of them it could be who was going to do this. And that must have somehow snowballed into, I kind of figured I'm more confident it's not me. Maybe it is you or the other. Not only that, I'm pretty good to the place of who is the greatest. A dispute also arose among them. They're disputing. They're arguing. As to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. That's just a living out of what James chapter 4 verse 1 tells us. What causes quarrels And what causes fights among you Christians? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? And they come out. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And nobody is immune from this deadly self-deception that leads to the feeling of superiority over others. See, at its core, when we see most clearly reality, it is a denial of that reality. It is a denial of the reality that every creature is utterly and radically dependent upon God for life and breath in all things. The reality is you had no say in being created. God spun you into existence in a particular century, 
in a first world country or a third world country or with a silver spoon in your mouth or in absolute abject poverty with those parents and they're all over the board with that radically dysfunctional family or only not so much dysfunctional but just dysfunctional family with your genetic pool and your genetic makeup, with gifts you had no say in and did not produce, and you saw them develop. And He's sovereign over every moment of your life. That's, that's reality. And then just what we see at the table is what we have seen in our own lives to one degree or another. Hey, look at me. Look what I'm doing. I must be really something. I'm better than you. I should be regarded as greater than you. We all constantly need a shot of biblical smelling salt. Like 1 Corinthians 4-7. Where Paul has to say this to believers. What do you have that you did not receive you didn't earn it. It was gift. What do you have that you did not receive? And if it's true, and you finally see that it is a gift of God, you receive whatever you're able to do. Why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so, in our text, Jesus goes on to teach them. You there in verse 25? He's listening to this. They're bickering. Who's the greatest? And then Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them, they're called, and I think Jesus' tongue is up against His cheek. Benefactors. He's saying the world is very different than my kingdom. Rulers and leaders in secular society love to subjugate others, to dominate them for their own gain. And yet, they're wise enough to say, we've got to figure out how to hide all this manipulation. Call me Your grace. Or Your benevolent one. Or My benefactor. You're there for My good. they got all kinds of Names or my great and glorious pastor, shepherd. Jesus says, don't be like that, my apostles. That's what He means there in verse 26. But not so with you. No, guys, no. That's how the world does it. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And the leader is one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? Obviously, in the world, yeah. But, guys, I am among you as the one who serves. Don't lead like the world leads, my apostles, through the exercise of strong arming, 
others. Now, no, Jesus does not say there are no such thing as leaders in the world or in the church. His apostles are leaders. They're called. They have actually very unique offices. There are no more of these. There are leaders. But He says the way you do it is by serving those whom you're over. Whom you have responsibility for. Now, in their culture, that's the word younger Jesus uses, the younger people in families and in groups, they got the lowly, menial task. They were the servants. That's what He's talking about. And so, He says to these guys with the responsibility over people to guide them, to teach them, to lead them, you, My apostles, or serve, not exploit your position. The task of leadership that Jesus is talking about is never to separate yourself from those you lead, but to identify with them, to care for them, as a servant would care for those that he or she is serving. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus serves us because He loves us. That's the Gospel. The Son of Man did not come to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul picked up on this love of his service and his great anthem has become many of ours in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And don't miss the words. Who loved me. And thus gave Himself up to death for me. Jesus is our model in all differing kinds of leadership roles in this world. So like in this room, for every single one of us that is a husband to a wife, we are the head. We have been given a responsibility of authority. And what that headship means is don't you dare manipulate her. Use her. Think that your leadership over her is to try to use her as a stepping stone to your selfishness. Leadership is the burden to serve those we are responsible for. Let me just 
Now I'm making that up. This is how it's put in Ephesians 5. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. In the same way as you follow His model, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and he cherishes it just as Christ does the church. That's the leadership husbands are called to. Think about it. He's the model. Who's the model? God, who became a human being. Who's the model? The King of the universe. The One who is sitting on the promised eternal throne of David. And in our text, He says, Yet, I am with you as one who serves. And the Apostle Paul, therefore, takes that reality of Jesus and puts Him forward as the model servant that we are to follow after. This is how he says it. And, and we love this passage because it is such a central, Christological passage of Jesus' divinity in humanity, in the one person, but really the reason it's there? Listen. Philippians 2. Have this mind in you. That's why it's there. Paul puts it there to say, I'm going to lay something out about Jesus. Have the mind in you that He had. Have this mind in you which was in Christ Jesus. And then he lays it out. What do you mean? This mind. Who Jesus, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto in the sense of refusing to become a human. No. But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a slave, a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says that's the mindset that we are to pursue as believers. That's kingdom living positioning yourself not as one who reclines at table. Fill my soda, please. Have a second helping. But one who gets up and puts an apron on and serves others at table. True biblical authority and leadership says to husbands, you are not to lord it over. That's what Jesus is referring to as the Gentiles. They lord it over. It's what He means there. 
but to serve. Or to pastors, church elders. It's a responsibility not to lord it over, but to serve the flock. Leadership is the responsibility to serve the people what is best for them. It doesn't use its position to gain personal advantage at other people's expense. Like Jesus, it models servanthood through sacrifice. Quote, Guys, I am among you as one who serves. And now as we read on, I think if we, can, if we really pay attention, we can see Jesus doing just this. Serving them. Notice His response to these knuckleheads is saying He is the true benefactor. Not a name only. You know, dictators love these glorious names. And they're exactly the opposite of what they are. Jesus is actually the one who lives to benefit us. He's the true benefactor. He lives to meet our deepest, most long-lasting needs. Verse 28, Guys, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you. means I give to you as my Father gave to me a kingdom. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Okay, just... The more you read the text and the more I thought about the text, I'm trying to okay, see all those red letters are just flowing. What's going on? Why, where'd that come from out of the blue? The more that I thought about the text, I think there's a touch of rebuke in what Jesus just said there to him. Some guys, you're sitting here bickering with one another on who should be lauded as the greatest. You're preoccupied on how you're going to be perceived in the eyes of others. How many times, how many times through these last few years have I told you the Father has prepared for you a kingdom? You're going to sit with me in the eternal kingdom at my table. You guys in particular, you're going to be judging the twelve tribes of Israel. i got special places for you. You don't deserve any of it. This is not about your greatness. It's not about getting your dessert. It's my joy and my gift, Peter. To give it to you. So why in the world are you guys bickering and arguing and fighting over who should be perceived as the greatest? And here's the flow of the text. In fact, let's get one thing straight, guys. 
Peter, choose you. If I left you to your greatness, if I left you to this greatness you're arguing for about how you are faithful, you will be a colossal failure. That's what he says. Simon. Simon. People debate, why didn't he just say Peter, Peter? Petros, you're a rock. Because right now he's saying, you're not the rock. Simon. Simon. Look. Satan demanded to have you. No, stop. See that word you? It's plural. So he's going to pick out Peter, but he means all these guys. It's really strange. It's a plural pronoun. He wants all of you guys. He's demanded to destroy you like Judas. That he might sift you. Now that's singular now to Peter. That he might sift you like wheat. But I, some of the greatest words in the world, I have. But I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, so he must mean like Judas, utter collapse, failure. Not that he wouldn't sin. And when you have turned, repented, come back again, strengthen your brothers. Peter, what? Jesus, I'm ready to both go to prison with you and to die with you. I just think he must have in his loving way shot back at him. Peter, before the sun comes up, you will have denied even knowing me. Three separate times. But his point is this in the text. Guess what, Peter? Satan demanded to have you. And it's not going to happen because I won't let it. I prayed for you. You will not utterly fall. You'll fail. And you'll turn back because I prayed for you. Now, at this Last Supper here and what we're seeing this morning, we've got to get the picture that's painted. Jesus needed His apostles to get what's happening here. He had just declared that Judas was destined for his betrayal of Jesus. Judas was not a born again person. Judas had no genuine saving faith in his heart. Peter was born again. And yet he sinned. And we will see, he will within hours deny out of fear, even knowing Jesus. But unlike Judas, 
He was saved. He was a sheep. And as Jesus says in John 6, of all the sheep that God gives to me as a gift, I will lose none of them. And therefore, Peter is one who absolutely will not, not be saved. Peter's salvation, like everybody who is saved, their salvation is guaranteed by the Savior who prayed for him. I think this is the underlying thing. Guys, get it. Peter, because I prayed, you will turn back to me. And so Peter and all the rest of you guys, stop the sinful boasting. You're going to persevere. You're going to persevere in your faithfulness to me. Not because you're great. Because I prayed. Because you're mine. Because this bread is my body and the cup is my blood. That's why you'll make it. You'll persevere because I preserve you. The difference between Judas and Peter was not in their intrinsic character. But it was because Jesus prayed for Peter. Alright, let's try to put it together. The Christian life is a life of serving others in manifold, differing ways. In differing gifts. Serving others in such a way that when you get it, there is absolutely no place in boasting for anything you have done. Whether you are given the Apostle Paul's gifts of teaching and church planning, or Peter's gift of preaching, or the gift of hospitality and to make homes that are welcoming and and bring great joy and comfort to those who need it. Or whether you have the gift of comforting people who are downtrodden and in pain. Or the gift of cooking and you just do it well and love to feed people. Or cleaning church. Or whatever your gift. And however you operate in them. He's saying... When you understand this Gospel, to that extent, you will not boast. There is no place for boasting in My kingdom except in Me. Except, as Paul says, in the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter, don't boast that you repented when you do. Thank God you repented. Don't boast that you have gifts of leadership. Thank God and give Him all the glory. Don't boast that you have musical talents and that you've even gone to school with or cultivated and trained and worked hard at. That you bless people with them to worship God. It's awesome. Thank 
God for those gifts. Don't, don't boast that you have the gift of organization. And you can't wonder, how come you people are so stupid and they don't know how to... Just, this is how you do it? No. Thank God you have that gift to serve others. I want you as we, before we close, I just wanted, I want you to turn to Romans and listen to what the Apostle Paul says to us. In Romans 12, verse 3, Paul writes in verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. How do we, believers, servants, be people who don't boast? It is to know the reality that God gives gifts. And not only does God give gifts... He gives measures of faith in which to operate those gifts. Just keep reading on. Watch what Paul does. Verse 4. Oh wait, first, according to the measure of faith that God has given, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many are one body and individually members of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then use it. But not in comparison with another with that gift. Use it in proportion to our faith that we have. If service, same thing, in our serving. One who teaches in his teaching. One who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in his generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Okay. Paul seemed to be very concerned that people were thinking way too highly of themselves because of their differing giftings and abilities. Wow, look at my gift. I'm greater than you. And His remedy for the pride is to say that not only are the giftings a work of God's grace, but so is the very faith and differing levels and strengths of faith that are given by God. In other words, when He gets down to the very foundation of it all, your faith in Me is a gift. He has pulled out the last straw 
from any grounds of true boasting in anything that is wrought or worked in you. That's how important servant humility is in God's eyes. Just, I just want us to feel, I'm going to read a three texts. Just feel this, because it is about believer. Whether you are Billy Graham or that lady who's faithful for 57 years in her church, knowing who the people are that are really hurting and going to them, cooking meals, it doesn't matter. At the core, it's all grace. Ephesians 2, 8-9, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, he means also, this very faith is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of your works. And then there's the purpose clause. Why would God do it this way? So that no one may boast. Peter, and all of you guys with me, and you've been with me, you guys are not the originator nor the sustainer of your faith. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I prayed for you. Satan said, can I have him? And I said, no. And therefore, he won't have you. Because of me, not because of you. But Jesus, because I'm strong, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Within hours, Peter, you will deny publicly even knowing me. He wants them to get it. Paul wrote it this way. In 1 Timothy 1, 13-14. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of the Gospel of Jesus, but I received mercy because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, here was my resume. I hated the Gospel, fought against it, and I was an unbeliever. There's my boasting. But then, grace invaded my life with faith. And Paul knew it not only to be true for himself, but for all who believe. So he writes to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29. 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Don't miss what he said. He's gonna, he wants that suffering to come out here, but he just assumed everyone knows the truth. It's been granted to you to believe in Christ and the Gospel. God gives initial faith and the perseverance of faith and the strengths of faith and grows faith because of that, I think it should be very instructive and encouraging to all of us believers on how to pray. Every day. Oh God, help my unbelief manifesting in this hard-heartedness that maybe no one knows about. But you know. And I feel it. And you brought me this morning to you to say, God, cause my faith to rise up. Cause your Spirit to foment it as I read your Word and meditate upon it. Because you've promised. Faith comes from hearing and hearing and hearing from the Word of God and from the Word of Christ. And so now, oh, I can pray to Him who does give. Yet you have not because you ask. Not so, Father, help my unbelief. The unbelief that has been causing me not to be a servant. Not to be obedient to Your commands, to Your words. That I could taste Your words, Jesus, and say, yes, My Savior who says, I am among you, is one who serves. Pastor, I think God might be calling me into the ministry of the Word. It's great. Okay. Good. You love the Word, right? Yeah. You want to understand it, right? You're willing to do what you need to do, right? You're willing to learn biblical languages? Yeah, I'm willing... And, and theological history and systematic theology and whether we start off informally, but there's lots of formal places. You're willing to, to pay people to make you do stuff so you become the best at it, right? Okay, All right, so we'll start to slowly work with that. Okay, good, good. But, it, but in the meantime right now too, you know, the bathrooms in the church need to be cleaned every Sunday morning. And also, it's great. I, I have this 85-year-old woman who's a widow, can't drive, and has no way to church. So could you be picking her up every Sunday and taking her home to the extent that that young man walks away with his head down? You know, thinking, well, that's not what I mean. It's a bad sign that there's leadership potential there. It is what Jesus means. I am 
with you is one who serves. Come on up, worship team. Jesus is saying, here's my daughter's conclusion. We talked about my sermon, so this is Lindsay's conclusion. I have to give credit. Guys, you all deserve the wrath of God. That's how great you are. And I, the Holy One, the living God, come in true humanity. I have come not to sit at the table and have you serve me, but to put the apron on and serve you eternal food. Particularly by laying down my life for you. So come, follow me in this. And Father, may we taste of this grace this week. The grace of Your Word. The grace of these words in Luke 22. The grace of the words that have gone forth in this thing called biblical exposition and biblical preaching. The grace of the work of Your Spirit in our midst through the Word. May it bear fruit in each and every one of our lives, in our marriages, in our mothering, in our fathering, as a boss, as an employee, as a, a Christian. Whatever we do, may we see the joy of following You in servicing the needs of others to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.